Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. We have recently seen a number of once prominent Christian leaders, as well as a number of believers online, announce that they are deconstructing their faith. Sadly, this deconstruction is often succeeded by a deconversion. They embrace the position that orthodox biblical Christianity is outdated, boring, or repressive. My guest on today's show argues against the deconstructionist position and those who would substitute historic biblical orthodoxy for modern heresy. His name is Trevin Wax, and we discussed his latest book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Trevin Wax is Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board and a visiting professor at Cedarville University. A former missionary to Romania, Trevin is a regular columnist at the Gospel Coalition and has contributed to the Washington Post, Religion News Service, World, and Christianity Today, which named him one of 33 millennials shaping the next generation of evangelicals. He has served as general editor of the Gospel Project and has taught courses on mission and ministry at Wheaton College. He is the author of multiple books, including The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rethink Yourself, This Is Our Time, and Gospel-Centered Teaching. Before we get into this conversation, let me encourage you, if you have not yet already, to subscribe to our email list so that you can get an email in your inbox anytime we release a new episode here on Filter. Just follow follow the link in the description to my show notes, and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you are subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on the homepage of whatever app you use. Uh, Subscribe to Filter on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts that you can get all future episodes. Lastly, if you are helped by or enjoyed this episode, would you please help us out by leaving us a rating and review, and especially by sharing this show or this episode with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating and review on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to... Uh, continue to the mission of sharing biblical clarity with more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Trevin Wax. Trevin, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you on. I've uh, been looking forward to getting to talk to you and uh, hear more about the book that we'll be talking about today, your upcoming book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Uh, before we get into that, I was looking at your bio and, you know, the audience just heard it. And I was interested in hearing a little bit more about your background. Tell us uh, especially about your missionary experience in Romania and then what it is you do now. Yeah, so um, I, I I started going to Romania on mission trips with my, with my church, um, with my youth group when I was you know, 15, 16, 17 years old Mm -hmm. and, uh, just really had a heart for, uh, cross-cultural missionary experience and, uh, really loved, um, the people there, the country, the culture, all of that. And, uh, by the time I was 19, I felt like the Lord was calling me to go do my education, my undergrad education over there in Romania. There's a Christian university there that I went to. Um, and so I basically, I mean, that was home base for me for about five years, uh, lived 
in Romania for the bulk of that time. Uh, I met my wife there during that time. We got married over there. We had our first son during that period of time. Um, and so for five years, that was home base. And then, you know, and I'd be, I'd come back and, and visit uh, the States. And so, um, you know, I, I think one of the, looking back, I think one of the, the reasons that that, or one of the things that I look back and I'm really grateful for uh, when it comes to that experience was the ability to be able to look at my own culture from the outside in, you know, to have been gone for so long, but then to be able to come back and be able to just to see things that I might not have seen before, or just to put certain things in perspective and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I felt like I cut my teeth ministry wise a lot of in what I was doing there. Um, yeah. But then came back to the States, had, you know, did, did um, seminary served uh, in, in, I've served in local churches in staff roles, um, was at Lifeway for more than a decade where I, I helped launch the gospel project and uh, the Christian standard Bible translation. And uh, in the past year or so have been at North American mission board uh, overseeing a, a little team that works on research and resource development and um, just creating free resources for pastors and church leaders. And so, yeah, I get to, I get to do a lot of different things and, and have uh, really enjoyed the, the places God has put me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so you went to a university in Romania. Um, what was that like? How's it different uh, in terms of, you know, historical context going to a, a university there versus, you know, a, your typical evangelical Christian college here in the States? Well, I mean, it was an evangelical university. And so it went, you know, the, and that's, I think that's one of the things that stands out to me is just how, how theologically rooted the, the, the university was because it was in that, that great, evangelical tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the things, I, I think a lot of the, the, the theology that I read, you know, I mean, one, one of our main textbooks was Millard Erickson Christian theology right. translated. So, yeah. it, you know, it wasn't that, you know, but then we also, we were continually reading and having to study, uh, you know, uh, evangelical Romanians who had, you know, had in the, in the period following communism, uh, mm -hmm. had been, had been leaders and had been talking about, you know, church and, uh, practices in the church and preaching in the church and things like that. So, um, I think for me, you know, what was, it, it was, I feel like my, I, I, I've often said, I feel like my mind came alive, uh, there at the university because I, you know, I had a, there's a great library there. And so I, I wound up, uh, really just, just learning a whole lot just through reading but then just the cross-cultural missionary experience is incalculable. Like you just, you know, I, I really, I learned to preach in Romanian, not in English, really, if I look back at that period of time. So just, I guess the first places for me to really do some significant, serious ministry, being in a different context and having to yeah. learn how to do ministry in, in, in the light of that setting uh, was, was something I'll take with me the rest of my life, you know, so uh, yeah, just really, really grateful for the, the time and the experience that I was able to have at, at a university and in another part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely a really unique uh, experience to get to have for an American. Cause he, I think if, you know, we all went to college, whether it was a Christian college or not with people from other parts of the world where they had to get their career started, or if, if it was a ministry, get their ministry started in another culture, another language. Uh, but you don't hear stories as often about, people from here getting to have that same experience somewhere else. So that definitely does make your story really unique. 
Uh, but you also are working on a new project right now. You've got a uh, podcast that you're working on. Tell us about that. Yeah. So one of the one of the initiatives that I've been involved with since I've been at the, the North American Mission Board has been, um, you know, you know, we've created resources and free courses and things at newchurches.com for church planters or for mm-hmm. churches that are wanting to send church planters and things like that. But alongside that has been a, a podcast project of mine. It's called Reconstructing Faith. And, uh, it is launching this fall. There's, it's 12 episodes currently. So the, the idea is, um, it, it's not, you know, a podcast where basically I'm just sitting down across the table from someone and we're talking for a while. It is more of a almost documentary style, but it's addressing the, the credibility crisis that I think the church is facing these days, uh, in light of a lot of things that have, that have happened. So, you know, you've got pastors and, and church leaders and ministers that have flamed out, fallen, for all all sorts of purposes, all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. um, and then you've got just different issues that are really have have made it difficult for the church's witness these days. I mean, everything from sex abuse scandals and crises to um, uh, what it looks like for there to be authority abuse of authority in the church, um, leading some to you know abandon proper authority when it comes to the pastoral role. You've got you know purity culture and the Christian sexual ethic is uh, uh, can. can you know, be a challenge for, for some people and you just social media, our political involvement, what that looks like, um, evangelicalism's history when it comes to race and, um, uh, things like that. So even, even things like the American dream and, and, and whatnot. So there's, there's a lot there that I just, I want to unpack and it's not the kind of podcast where, you know, you're going to solve everything and wrap everything up in a, in a, in a, you know, with a little bow and 45 to 60 minutes. It's more of a, Hey, let's think through these things and let's have some perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm trying my best to, to bring some church history to bear on some of these conversations as well mm-hmm. as connection to, to the church around the world so that, so that we're able to, to have some, some needed perspective and that we begin to, to, uh, to rebuild, frankly, after, uh, it's been a, a pretty challenging season for, for, for churches in, in North America. So. Uh, so yeah, I'm just I'm 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 just hopeful that it it, it gives some hope out there, and that there yeah. are um, pastors, church leaders, thoughtful Christians uh, who who listen to this and who realize you know this we got a lot of work ahead of us, but we we are the church, and we want the church to be as healthy as she can be in the next generation, and so you know it's going to fall to us to to see that we we try and do that as best we can. So yeah, yeah, that no, sounds great. And uh, I think there will be a lot of people helped by that. You know, as a pastor myself, I think that, uh, and I know a lot of the pastors would agree that all those issues you listed are things that we've addressed and had to talk to people about are things that people have asked us questions about, uh, especially in the last two to three years. And so definitely all very relevant topics. And uh, yeah, I think people will be certainly helped by all that. I know you said it's coming out in the fall, uh, which, well, we're in the fall. Uh, do you, is there any way that you can point people to where they can go now to um, learn about it or subscribe? Uh, yeah, so it, it, debuts, it, it debuts in October, and uh, the first set of episodes will run through November. I think we'll got, we'll have another couple in December and then finish it up in January. Um, but, yeah, the place to, to go to it is if, I mean, you just look up Reconstructing Faith, uh, Trevin Wax, if you look it up, you should be able to find it. It's going to be, you know, Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher, all the main podcast pl- platforms, you'll be able to find it. And um, if you if you just search it online, you'll you'll come across the the main 
website for it, which is on North American Mission Board's site. And there's some discussion guides and some other things for the episodes in case, you know, you, you've got anyone in your church that you think, hey, this would be good for them to listen to this episode. Let's talk about it. You know, like that's, yeah. it, it's the way I look at it. I mean, I'm hoping that I'm providing some wisdom and perspective, but it's not like a final word on anything. It's more like, you know, just, I, I want to, to help just speak into these conversations that are already happening and kind of be able to bring some, some, some wise counsel from other guests as well, who have, have studied some of these issues and are looking at them with, with an eye to not being inflammatory or just, you know, being overly dramatic, but just looking at, Hey, here's where the church is and here's what we can do to, to see the church be healthier in the days ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, by the time this episode comes out, that the podcast should be released because we are recording a couple weeks ahead. So uh, I'll have the link to that in the show notes for any of you guys who are listening and want to go check out Trevor's new podcast. But let's talk about your book. So you have your your new book coming out called uh, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Uh, whenever we talk about orthodoxy and whenever you talk about it in this book, what are we talking about? What do you mean? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question because, um, you know, when I first announced that this was the name of the book, it came, I, there's been a couple of ways people have taken it. One is um, there are, I, I just, I did an annotated guide to G.K. Chesterton's famous book called Orthodoxy. So some people were like, are you talking about the thrill of like Chesterton's orthodoxy here? And I'm like, no, no. And then other people, they, you know, uh, there's been a couple of people that have said the thrill of orthodoxy, like Eastern orthodoxy. And I'm like, no, no, little O orthodoxy. I'm referring to those foundational Trinitarian doctrines and truths that Christians have been in substantial agreement upon since the very beginning. Uh, and it, just to be really clear, I'm talking about the, 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 the fundamental truths of Christianity that are, are necessary for Christian, necessary to be Christian, to be authentically Christian. So we're talking about those, uh, you can call it, mere Christianity, if you want, you know, like the C.S. Lewis way of thinking about it, or like what Thomas Oden would call classic Christianity. But it's, it's, we're referring to those doctrines that have been believed always, everywhere, and by all, um, that all, all Christians come together and unite on. And, and the, the, the easiest place to look for, to, to see where that unity has, has been are in the great, the, the three great ecumenical creeds of the church, which are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And, uh, you know, some people listen to this, you may or may not be familiar with those creeds, depending on if you're in a more liturgical church that recites them, or whether you're just in a church that may know of them, but don't really have a place in worship for them. Um, the, the, the point really isn't the creeds. In fact, that where this section in the beginning where I have the creeds, I've got all of the scriptural references next. To, it's like a, it's a pretty handy chart, I think, where I'm showing you where in scripture these foundational beliefs are, are taught because it's more like they're summaries of scripture. So, so when I talk about orthodoxy, that's what I'm referring to as opposed to what we would say would be heresy, which would be something that falls outside the boundary of that. Uh, something that actually goes against a central component, either denies or affirms something that, um, that, that opposes orthodoxy at some level. And in between those are errors. And, you know, everybody's in error at some point. Like, I don't, I think we, all, all Christians recognize, you know, that the Lord will have to straighten us all out uh, at some point. But there are some errors that are more serious than others. They're not necessarily heresies, but if they, if left untouched, they can kind of, we can kind of drift into the direction of, of heresy. And so, 
Um, so that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about when, when I talk about the thrill of orthodoxy, I'm talking about being thrilled by those foundational truths that, uh, that really have, have united the church from the beginning. Yeah. So what's the need that you saw that led you to write this book? Uh, why do you think it's necessary for people to hear about these truths, read these old dusty creeds and learn about them and so on. Like, what, what do you see as the need for it? Well, I think, I think every generation needs to be reinvigorated by time-tested truths. Um, otherwise, we're going to be prone to, to uh, drifting toward whatever sounds thrilling or innovating or you know, progressive or whatever it might be. Like at the end of the day, I think the need of the church is to consistently go back to the basics. And especially in our day and age, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's different reasons why I had a burden to write this book. And one of them is, um, I, things are really confusing right now. There's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of polarization. There's a lot of tribalism. There's a lot of, a lot of discussion, debate, division, disunity on matters related to prudence and wisdom and principle, not necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily orthodoxy or heresy, but just, you know, we're, we're really good right now at anathema, at anathematizing each other for all sorts of reasons. So mm. like when, and when things are kind of crazy like that and, and culturally, it's just like, you don't even know which way's up. And there's just, it's one thing after another. Um, I think you could just got to go back to the basics. Like you got, you, you know, and if you're going to plant your flag somewhere, you need to plant your flag where it, the ground is really firm. You want to dig down to the bedrock of the faith. Hmm. And, um, and so I, I think that there's a, a need for that kind of rootedness that, that the church needs. And then I think the church, but in, it's not just being rooted so that you, you feel stable and secure, but it's also being, it, it, there's also an adventure there of discovering that, of discovering just how wonderful these foundational time-tested truths are and what the implications of them are for the Christian life um, you know, in, in a, in a, in a, in a larger perspective. So, so yeah, for me, that's the, that's really been the the challenge. And I think the burden behind the book is wanting to provide that for the church. Cause I think it's one of the needs every generation has. I think in particular, it's one of the needs that we have today. Yeah. What would you say to someone who hears what you just said and they learn, okay, this is what orthodoxy means. They hear you refer to the creeds and they say, yeah, but we uh, we have progressed a lot farther now in, in in history and in the church and our culture. You know, we're more enlightened, not just scientifically and technologically, but also enlightened in terms of what are acceptable lifestyles and understanding that uh, we see a broader, more diverse range of lifestyles available today than what they had, and uh, you know the kind of things that they may have suppressed. And so it's it's narrow. It is um, regressive to say that we have to live by what these older ancient people thought was the only right way to live, you know. And they say, so haven't we moved on from that? Why can't we move on from that? So what would be, in other words, your apologetic for orthodoxy? Yeah. So um, that's a that's a great question. I think a lot of people are asking that question, and it really comes back to the question of like what's what's essential and what's not to to uh, orthodoxy because I mean, it, it is true. There are certain things that the church, you know, got really worked up about at certain times in certain places that we would look at and say, yeah, you know, some of the practices, some, you know, that, that that's probably not as uh, not, not really healthy or that there've been 
extremes here and there, you know, when, when you think about um, uh, Christian views of, of the body at, from time to time, or, you know, there's been, you know, the, uh, uh, ascetic extremes and, uh, and things like that. So, so I think it's a good question to ask. Um, the, the, the challenge for us today, though, is, is, um, is recognizing that um, there is such a thing as what I would, what I would call a moral orthodoxy. Um, and when I when I speak to that, I'm talking about particular ethical uh, positions that are so tightly connected to foundational truths that are in the creeds, clearly taught in the scriptures, that um, to 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 move away from them is actually to 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 do damage to the superstructure of Christianity itself. Um, and so, for example, there are people today that say, "Well, you know, there's nothing said about marriage in the creeds." So you can be completely orthodox and affirm the creeds and yet uh, believe we should expand our understanding of marriage to include people of the same sex or to, you know, either multiple partners and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got that, that kind of argument there. And on, on the surface, it sounds, it's, it's kind of taking a, what I would call a minimalist approach to the creeds. It's as if to say, Hey, I can, I can affirm these bare doctrines of the faith, at least the minimal this is what constitutes orthodoxy, but then I can have wild innovations over here or things that the, the rest of the church wouldn't recognize and still be in the orthodox side. I don't think that that's how the, the Christians through the ages have looked at the creeds. Uh, when Augustine had his famous altercations with Pelagius um, over, you know, really a, a question of the nature of humanity and whether or not we're born innocent naturally good or, or naturally, uh, evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really what, how salvation is, is played out and whether we, you know, what we, what we do, how we live a moral life and whatnot. When Augustine had those debates, he didn't say, well, you know, there's nothing in the creeds about Pelagianism. So I guess we can just agree to disagree on this. He, he recognized that the implications of those creeds covered this particular issue. And that's one of the reasons why the church agreed with Augustine and why Pelagius was, was seen as heretical. Um, I think something similar is happening with them with conversations about marriage and sexuality and things like that. And that um, there are, it's not the, that we're raising the level of sexuality to the, to the creedal standpoint. It's that we're recognizing the anthropological, the, the doctrine of humanity that's underpinning the move toward same-sex marriage or whatnot is actually it, that in itself is what's is what's heretical. It's the question. It's not the question. What is marriage? It's the question of what is a human? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a human body? Like what does it mean to be uh, for our bodies to have natural ends uh, goals? You know, like what the it, it really goes back to that first line of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. The implications of that line cover what we're talking about here, what it means yeah. to be created male and female and whatnot. So I just, I think that um, there, the, the, the way that you can tell that this is a fundamental aspect of orthodoxy is that marriage is a, it's like a load bearing wall in the house of, in the, in the house of faith in that um, you, you move that, that wall and the, the, the structure collapses and virtually everybody that you see, every theologian, every, you know, Christian teacher, preacher, whoever that, that shifts on the issue of sexuality and marriage, um, within a decade or so, it becomes clear. They've also shifted on all sorts of other doctrines. 
Yeah. Because, because so many things hinge on that anthropological turn that mm-hmm. happens at that moment. And so, so yeah, I just, I think it's actually short sighted and somewhat narrow minded actually to think that you can just tweak something like marriage and keep the rest of orthodoxy all there together. It's really, it, it's not that simple. I think it's actually, once you understand the expansiveness of orthodoxy, you, you see it, you see it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I know this is a point that you make in the book, but I think what people don't understand if they make some sort of the objection like I had made and uh, want to try to rearrange the house like you were talking about is missing that you're not just, um, uh, you know, stepping out from the old dusty tradition into like a new progressive freedom, but you're exchanging one orthodoxy for another. You're you're exchanging this orthodoxy, which we would argue is based upon the revealed word of God, you know, so in line with who God is and his will and his character for uh, an orthodoxy written by someone else uh, and based upon man's wisdom. And so it's not uh, just, uh, um, yeah, it's not just like a stepping out into this like new newfound freedom. Uh, or necessarily something better, but it's a substitute orthodoxy that you might now be following. Well, and that's really, and, and honestly, that's, I think you're right about that. And that's one of the reasons why people who generally go in that direction um, over time sort of write off everybody who's not going with them in that direction because because it is a foundational plank of the new religion they've constructed on top of of this. And that's really how all heresies begin. Uh, heresies have a kernel of truth generally all the time. It's, it's actually one of the things I show in the book is that most of the time a heresy begins with one truth that is isolated and taken out of the entire Christian tradition. And that one truth, once it gets isolated and divorced from other very essential Christian truths, it then becomes a weapon that is used to sort of uh, clobber the other, um, uh, the, the other truths within uh, Christianity. So it becomes like a, it becomes weaponized. Mm-hmm. And, and when that happens, um, the, it's become the, the unassailable plank of a new foundation, a new religion that's sort of constructed on top of that. So, so yeah, that's, that's one of the challenges that we face is being able to recognize that. And the only way to really recognize that though, um, is by being in, in communication with the church around the world that, that you're not, you know, so tunnel focused on sort of your own culture, your own society, but recognizing that there's a global church here uh, and, 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 and the, the global consensus really matters and the church throughout history. I mean, the way I put it is if, if your position, if you take a, an ethical position or a doctrinal position, um, you know, if you, if your position is one that would horrify basically every theologian, pastor and lay teacher in the past 2000 years, the burden of proof is on you to explain why that deviation from the norm is actually acceptable or not just acceptable, but, you know, inevitable the way we should go. Um, that's where the burden of proof is. And so in, in this, in this particular case, you know, for, for us in the, in sort of in Western Europe or in North America or whatnot, uh, questions about anthropology and sexuality or whatnot are, are at the height there. Um, and we really do need the global church and the church throughout history to help us maintain our bearings, to be able to see why it is that this is not um, uh, the, the the direction the church should or ultimately the church will go. Yeah, 
That's a really good point to compare ourselves, not just to the church historically, because people who would be arguing these points typically don't like history. Um, but to p- compare ourselves even to the global church now, uh, the contemporary global church, and ask, are we stepping out of line with, with, and are we embracing something that would horrify the church around the rest of the world now? And that's an interesting argument to make because these more uh, th- these types of objections or driftings that you're describing, which would be coming from a more progressive viewpoint, uh, are typically also the kind of uh, uh, viewpoints that will be arguing that um, these traditional uh, biblical orthodox beliefs that we've been holding on to are uh, often the expressions of uh, Western imperialistic men and culture. And so, so we should let go of them because of their Western or white or imperialistic background. The irony, though, is that many of these new anthropological positions that are being taken would actually be far more imperialistic to then say that this is the truth that all the global church should be following. Yeah, no, there's a huge irony there. In fact, some of the very same people who will say we need to move away from sort of Western, white, dominated theologians, European, whatever, are are the very ones who then dismiss the, the voices of so many Christians in the global South, you know, black and brown believers and, and, whether it be South America or in uh, Asia or Africa or whatnot, who are uh, uh, really appalled at some of the the developments that they see theologically going on in in the West. So it's all it's it's just the the ironies are really thick there. Um, and I just I, at the end of the day, though, it's it really isn't even the the you know I I go back to the to listening and having our voices you know listening carefully to the global church. Um, but, but it, even if, even if more and more places in the world were to go in this direction, I mean, the, the fruit of moving in that realm, when it comes to the rest of Christian orthodoxy and Christian teaching eventually becomes manifest. You remove that low bearing wall and you start to see, you know, as Matthew Lee Anderson talks about, like the, it's an architectural doctrine of the Christian faith. You begin to see the architecture is affected. So, you know, it, like it, it, I think some of this will be, will become clearer and clearer, and, uh, you know, it may take decades to kind of work through some of this because, you know, the church has been battling Gnostic heresies in different one form or another from the very beginning, really, even yeah. some sort of a Gnosticism, even in the early new, in the New Testament writings. But then especially with Irenaeus and some of the other early, early um, Christian writers and thinkers. Um, and this isn't in, in a sense, this is this is built upon a foundation that is in some ways fundamentally Gnostic. And so we we will, you know, it again, it takes decades to work through this, and there are different kinds of controversies that the church is constantly having to 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 work through, and this is going to be one of those. And I'm just, I'm one of the voices out there who, you know, the book isn't really about this subject, but I do touch on it in a yeah. few places because I think this is one of the, you know, the contentious points of our day. We got to speak to it, you know, and I want to I want to plant the flag with orthodoxy and yeah. say. You can have confidence that this position is not only true, but also good and beautiful. And here's why. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's so good and true and beautiful, why do you think that we tend to drift away from orthodoxy? Well, you know, I think that there are, I think that there are lots of reasons for that, depending on, on, um, uh, depending on the person. 
Um, I think it's easy to drift away from orthodoxy sometimes just because we're looking for something new, something that sounds exciting. We, you know, we kind of have grown bored with the, the, the doctrines that, that once captured our hearts, you know, that, um, and, and, and the God who we've encountered in Christ, uh, it can be, it can be very, you know, at times, uh, we can, we can drift for that reason. I think we can drift because we're focused just on what's immediately practical and relevant. Like we don't see the Trinity as practical. And so we, we don't really give much attention to it, even though it's foundational to so many things and does connect to our practice in more ways than people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, another reason we could drift is just because we become uncomfortable with with Christian teaching. And I mean, let's just face it. There are some areas of Christianity that are really unpopular right now, and in particular in our society. Uh, there, But I just want to say in every culture, there's going to be that. You're, if, if Christianity really does transcend culture, you ought to expect that Christianity is going to impinge upon and cut against the grain at some at some place at some level or another in every culture in every society, and so so there's that too um, that I think is is um, an important thing to to, to keep in mind. But uh, yeah, I think I think we can easily drift away from what's good and beautiful because is you know one of the things I. Early on in the book, I quote Tolkien talking about one of the the regrettable things about human nature is how quickly we become satisfied w- w- with what is good, and we wind up losing losing our taste for what is good. Like we just we become over familiar with stuff, and then we we wind up um, uh, thirsting for for something different, for something more. And um, what I want to do is say, hey, take that longing, that thirst. And go deeper into orthodoxy. Don't don't move away from orthodoxy. Mm. What you're looking for, you can find there in the riches of the Christian tradition. You can find that in God as he has revealed himself to us. You don't need a different vision, a different portrait in order to find what it is that you're that you're looking for. Yeah, what do you think it is inside of us as people, believers and non-believers, that makes us um, like Tolkien said losing an interest in the good and, or, or as you put it to constantly be looking for something new. What is it that yeah, makes, I just, what is it in our human nature that makes us like that? Yeah, I think, I think of the fact that, I mean, I go back to, you know, one of the most important theologians in throughout history is Augustine who talks about how um, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And uh, there, there's a sense in which even after we have, found a measure of rest in God, we are still restless. And part of that restlessness is God-given in that we want to be, we, we, we're on a quest and we're strivers. And that's like, that's part of what human nature is. Um, and it's a beautiful thing, but it is so easily misdirected. Mm. And so, and, and so I think that's, that's the, that, that lack of satisfaction, that lack of contentment, that inability to really be satisfied by what is good and by the desire for something different or something more or something uh, better in some way, instead of us directing that toward the God who, who is our ultimate goal, uh, who is our ultimate aim, the vision of God that is our ultimate future, I just think it's easy for us to get sidetracked and to, to think we're going to, you know, get that jolt of excitement from something else. It's just, it's, it's in our nature that we've, we 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 constantly we have that god given desire and then it gets misdirected and then that leads us astray i think in a lot of ways yeah yeah i think you made a really good point there um i mean you've been making a lot of good points but it, it, you know something that you said there in that how even whenever we encounter god and we find ourselves satisfied by him well then we still have to go deeper to continue being satisfied and i and i think about um 
I, I can't remember where it is in Ephesians, but I think it's in chapter one um, or two, where Paul says that one of the points of heaven is for us to be eternally in awe of who God is, you know, to, to just continue to, to see his wisdom and beauty and goodness for all eternity. And I think that we see even in ourselves as people right now, that hunger for infinity, you know, even though we are not infinite, uh, at least in our bodies right now, there's still this hunger for, uh, for infinity inside of us. And I think that from the naturalistic worldview or proponents of atheism would argue something from evolutionary biology, trying to explain that away, why we always feel this need to be satisfied for more. But I think the better argument is that no, actually we have souls that can only be satisfied by something uh, that is infinite. And even uh, the infinite God is something that we have to continue drinking from and going into deeply to satisfy that hunger. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what, one of the myths of our time is that the way that you're going to, um, to, to satisfy, to quench that thirst is by, or what you will find thrilling is by moving away from orthodoxy, being edgy, you know, innovative, like fuzzy on doctrine or ambiguous, kind of, you know, just this sort of embrace of mystery, not in the sort of the biblical way of understanding that we're never going to completely come to a full comprehension of who God is or what he has done, but in almost sort of a way that that flattens out and actually fogs up the the picture of of what the bible does clearly reveal um i think i think that's the the challenge is that you know and i can, i i will say i really i started reading theology right around the time that you know the the whole emerging church conversation was taking place which mm-hmm. within evangelicalism there was you know a, a crop of books and 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 teachers and um you know websites and things that had that were really asking some really good questions about what does it mean to to be Christian in a postmodern era, like what does that look like? How do how do our how does our mission strategy shift based on those cultural differences between modernity and postmodernity? Uh, and there's some really good questions that were kind of floating around in the air, and that a lot of people were asking. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the answers were, um, um, I think, just a lot of the answers were just unbiblical. And at the end of the day. You know, as as interesting as those conversations were to me, the the more I kind of read into that literature, and the more I was, the more I re- recognized this is really a domesticated and tamer version of Christianity than than what ought to be there. Mm. If 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 they were complaining about the church having been tamed by modernity and domesticated by modernity, um, which they were, and they were often right about that, like is the answer to then be domesticated and tamed by postmodernity? Like mm. what? Like how does yeah. that even make sense? And so. For me, it was like I, I, I eventually came to realize the, the excitement is not, is not here. It's not in this sort of domesticated, overly tame, shorn of all the rough edges version of Christianity that I'm seeing in that, in that, in that style of literature. It really is by going back even further than postmodernity and modernity, back to ancient Christianity to see like what – what are like what, what let let me jump into the deep end of the pool of orthodoxy and that's what was exhilarating and reinvigorating yeah. and that's where i was like that's that's where the future is it yeah. it 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 comes from you know our retrieving what we need from the past yeah yeah i think that you see that over the place today how 
because um, even the mainstream church and a lot of the evangelical church kind of jumped on that bandwagon, even if they didn't embrace like emergent theology, uh, definitely embraced the emergent form in church services and and the way institutional churches operated and so on. Um, the more and more that they embraced that and just kind of went along with the rest of our culture's obsession with the new, the innovative, and so on. Well, whenever that became the new norm, I think people started to see tradition as innovative. And so now you see this hunger for people wanting things that are old and that are traditional and that are rooted um, because it feels more innovative than all of the so-called relevant things we've been offered. The issue, though, is that they embrace, like you said before, the architectural structure of what makes that tradition and rootedness so good, which is the orthodoxy behind it. The name of the book is The Thrill of Orthodoxy, and you talk about the adventure of it. And I'm interested to know uh, what is it that makes orthodoxy? And you, you've been touching on this, so I think it's a good point now to talk about it. What makes orthodoxy thrilling? What is the adventure behind it in where we are right now in the 21st century? Well, it's, it's, really, the, it's really the thrill of discovery. That that you are you're discovering something real that you didn't invent, and I think I think the reason it's thrilling is because the world says, and a lot of assumptions are out there that that the the the, the thrill today is to kind of create your own religious identity. You know, it's kind of like you kind of patch together, cobble together a religious identity that works for you, that is going to help you personally in your in your personal faith and. You know, and I mean, there is some excitement to that. That's why people do it. You know, it's like uh, Tara Burton calls it uh, intuitional religion over institutional mm, religion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you just, because of your intuitions, you kind of piece together this religious identity mm. that fits for you. Um, and, and, and it works as a spirituality. Um, that can seem really exciting to a lot of people. It, the, the point I'm making in this book, though, is that it's not, it's not really what's exciting. That's like saying it's exciting to live in an air-conditioned house where you control the temperature, you control the climate, you control the, you know, what, what this house feels like inside and out. You're the one who's kind of in control as opposed to having to deal with weather that you can't control, but that you're having to adapt to yourself. See, you can either adapt your house to you or you can adapt yourself to something much, much bigger than you, which is your house outside. And so the reason I say it's an adventure, orthodoxy is an adventure, is because it's more like going out into the wild world of wonders and, and having to be adapted to something that is so much bigger and more grand than anything you can conceive of, rather than just sort of just live in the comforts of your, of your air-conditioned home. Now, I mean, I love air conditioning, don't get me wrong, but my, my point with that is just to say yeah. um, Christianity, orthodoxy, is not something you created. It's something that you confess and that's what that's where the the real adventure lies is in discovering that running up against that recognizing you're you didn't start this you didn't make this i love the 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 song from from rich mullins you know creed which is actually borrows from something that chesterton says in orthodoxy his book but rich mullins basically said no um no i uh am not making this this is making me that's that's why it's so powerful. It's because it's something that you are having to alter yourself to fit rather than alter to fit you. And it can seem exciting to do the other, 
But you'll never have a religion. You'll never have a spirituality. You'll never have a faith that is any bigger than the bigness of your own heart if you are constantly trying to adapt the faith to fit your preferences. Whereas if you actually adapt yourself to fit the faith, then your heart gets bigger. It, it, you're enlarged. You're, you're, you're discovering something that, that, that you didn't create. And, and that's, I think that's where the, the real excitement lies. Yeah, that's great. And I think it goes directly against what's maybe the primary value of our culture today in America, the value of uh, expressive individualism and that what I want, what I desire, what I think about myself and the world must be expressed at all cost. And more than that, must be affirmed by everyone and everything around me at all costs. And anything that threatens that is actually a threat to me and my well-being. I think what you just explained goes directly counter to that. And so it's certainly a, a difficult message to, um, to share today, but one that I definitely think is good. Um, do you have people who you think uh, push back against the message of adapting yourself to the Orthodox um, based on that value? Yeah, I, I think people that push back don't, they generally don't confront it head on. What what happens is like a lot of people I think will nod their head with me and will say, yes, 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 we need to adapt ourselves to Christianity. That's what it means to follow Jesus and whatnot. But then when the the when it when it, the the actual point of contradiction, conflict, confrontation comes, where it's really we're choosing this path over this path, and I prefer this path, but I know this is the path I'm supposed to be going on. That's when you actually see it cashed out in real life. Like what is really the driving force here? Like who is at the blazing center of all things and who is really um, in charge? And so, yeah, I think it's not that people, you know, I mean, there are some people that will say, Trevin, a book like this is all about, you know, you just reasserting the control of the few over the many by appealing to orthodoxy, orthodoxy itself is repressive or whatnot. Mm. Those people already have another orthodoxy that they're completely beholden to. And they don't know. It's like another thing. Jesterton says the most, the, the, the funny thing about dogmas today is that some of the most anti-dogmatic people are the most dogmatic. Um, it, but, but they're they They don't recognize the dogmas they have. <laughs> like the, yeah. You know, the, the reason why that they're, they're, so upset about this particular set of dogmas is because they're already bought into this other set of dogmas. Like it's not like you, you can, you know, you can completely avoid the question of belief and faith and what you actually, what the convictions you actually hold and stand on. So, um, so yeah, I, I, a lot of times when people sort of buck against orthodoxy, it's because they already beholden to another orthodoxy and I want them to see why this orthodoxy that they're resisting is actually bigger, better, broader, more beautiful than the narrower uh, heresy that they may have already believed in without even realizing it. Yeah, one thing that I try to help people understand and that I uh, I talk to people about is how this lifestyle that's being sold to them by our culture, by the university they go to, and so on, the one that has expressive individualism at the center, but essentially tells them just place yourself at the center of your life, your desires, what you think about yourself, what you want yourself to be, and, and so on. This is uh, this will lead you down a road to becoming empty. 
it'll lead you down the road to becoming miserable. Whereas the lifestyle, as you would put it, of orthodoxy or of giving yourself over to, to God, letting him transform you, is a lifestyle of adventure. And it's a lifestyle of, uh, it is a life of fullness uh, and of thrill, as you would put it. Um, yeah, but yeah, but, but but so many people think that it's actually in the life of placing yourself at the center that'll bring you the things, that, whether it be adventure, satisfaction, uh, that they're looking for. Whenever you try to help people get started on this road and introduce them to orthodoxy and all that it means, where do you start in pointing them? Yeah, you know, I, um, I that's a that's a great question. I I've got like a next steps reading list in case people want to like to to read up on some of these things. But there's all sorts of places to go these days. Um, uh, you know, I mean, first I'm just pointing people back to the scriptures, right? So at, at the end of the day, it's it's not church history where the the, the most excitement is it's actually God's word and how eternally relevant it is to our everyday lives um, where we recognize and we see that we are, we are deliberately wanting to conform ourselves to God's word to us, uh, to what God's word teaches. Um, and so, so, I mean, we, I think we've got to start there. I think we've also got to recognize that um, orthodoxy is a communal thing, that it is uh, that the church really matters here. Uh, most, you know, heresies lead to schism. They, they, they always do in the schismatics. I mean, currently, you know, there's schisms taking place because I think of the, 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 a lot of debates over sexuality and whatnot, but, um, you know, the, 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 the connection to a local congregation that knows where it is in the branch of the Christian tree, which branch it is of a Christian tree and where it is and what God has done through that branch and what God is doing through that branch and yeah. how it fits and how it, it connects to, to other believers who may not be in the same denomination even, but have the same commitment to the foundational tenets of orthodoxy. I think those, um, that's, that's really Im, Im, important as well, uh, to, to, to do some, some reflection and s some study there. But, um, yeah, I, I would I would point people to uh, you know to different resources uh, for reading and reflection, but also just back to you know the churches and and back to our to to what it means to to confess together uh, something. I there, there's there's a place that is just it, the local church is irreplaceable in this in this conversation and being part of a church that is connected through space and time to all believers who have gone before and believers around the world today. Uh, in these foundational essential truths of orthodoxy is just, you know, it's, it's where it's, it's where the thrill comes alive in a lot of ways. And so I just wouldn't discount the importance of the local congregation that is submitted to the authority of God's word. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, absolutely essential. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. It's been a great discussion, but as we go, what do you want to leave with our listeners who've been, um, who've been following us with us in this episode or people who pick up the book, what is your hope that they are left with after listening to this episode or reading your book? You know, I mean, several things. I mean, I know people read the book and they come, they come from different, uh, you know, they come with different baggage and different perspectives and different experiences that may in some ways make it hard for, for, for them to, uh, to, to move forward in their, in their faith. Maybe they feel stagnant or, or whatnot. My, my hope is, is that people will feel reinvigorated by the beauty of Christian truth. Like there, that, that there would be certain doctrines or truths that just sort of, you know, just wow them again, where they're like, wow, this is, 
this truth about Jesus, this truth about God. It's amazing. It's amazing. We and and that they would encounter him, you know, afresh. Because at the end of the day, I I mean, the the goal isn't to fill our heads with a bunch of doctrines. It's to meet the one that doctrines describe, to encounter him, to know yeah. him. So so yeah, that's the, you know that's sort of the immediate hope for that. And then I also just I have the hope that today in a day when there's just so much controversy and division and polarization, tribalism, I, I really hope that there will be a lot of people that, that get into this book that regain their sense of confidence that, you know, orthodoxy is going to be around. Like if you're looking for where to plant your feet and plant the flag, where to dig down, go find the bedrock of faith, dig down to that. Cause it's going to be here a hundred years from now there will still be people all around the world who affirm these essentials of orthodoxy. You can, you can go to the bank on that. So I just, I want people to, to have confidence that this is enduring. It's time tested and there's going to be all sorts of temptations to drift, change our beliefs to, you know, fall this way or that way, stay the course and not only that, find new ways to apply orthodoxy today. Um, not to adapt orthodoxy for the times, but to apply orthodoxy to the times. That's that's really where the excitement is. And so I, I just I hope there are more Christians that regain their sense of confidence in the goodness of the Christian faith and then figure out ways to to apply it and to spread it, even in the kind of culture that we that we live in. Yeah. That's great. Like I said before. It's been a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it and excited about your book. Once again, for our audience, the book is called The Thrill of Orthodoxy from Trevin Wax. You can go and pick it up. If you check my show notes, I have a promo code available for you to be able to get 30% off. So go check the show notes and use the link to get that so you can get a copy for yourself, for your uh, family, friends, or a group that you want to read the book together with. Um, so yeah, just click on the show notes. You can find the book, find uh, the promo code, and so on. Uh, Trevin, how can people follow you uh, and your work as uh, before we go? It's really easy. I've got one of those names that no one else has. So if you just go to trevinwax.com, you'll come across my column at the Gospel Coalition. If you look me up at, on Twitter at Trevin Wax or Facebook at Trevin Wax or Instagram at Trevin Wax, it's I'm probably about as easy to find online as anyone else. So that's probably the, the best way to get in touch with me. Great. Yeah, guys, go give him a follow uh, and, and uh, keep up with his work. Trevin, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a great time. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Enjoyed it. provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.